This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, I had Ben Eltham to join me to talk about federal politics. Then Jennifer Breyer dialed in from LA to talk about her film, which is a documentary called Unrest. Unrest really details Jennifer's experience suffering from myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is also known as chronic fatigue syndrome, and she also highlights the plight of others around the world who suffer from this misunderstood disease. Then following that, I had a panel discussion with Dr. Chris Armstrong, who is a researcher at the Bio21 Institute at the University of Melbourne, activist and Emmy sufferer Anna Kerr, as well as Dr. Heidi Nickel, who is the CEO of Emerge, a not-for-profit group supporting those patients with Emmy. Then finally, I had a chat with science writer and author Jim Robbins. Jim has written for the New York Times, among many other publications, and recently wrote a book called The Wonder of Birds. I spoke to him ahead of his appearance at the Wheeler Centre. I have with me in the studio our regular guest to talk federal politics, Mr. Benjamin Eltham. Good morning, Amy. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Feeling good behind the desk again. It's just like home, really. Good to have you back. Thank you. And it's good to be back to talk about federal politics. I know a lot has been going on since we last spoke, including uh, a range of scandalous... (laughs) Sorry, no one can see what Ben's doing, but one of the earphones can't... I've put the headphones on wrong, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. like stuck and it won't sit. Ah, there hey, we go. Hey, hey. Yeah, it was yeah. a bit of a fashion item just before, but it's okay. Yeah. A moment <laughs> um, for radio, that was. Isn't it? Perfect yeah. moment for radio. So... As I was going to say, um, a lot has happened. We've got a new Nationals leader. Uh, we've had a Barnaby kind of having a bit of a quiet time uh, at least this we week. Can just not talk about Barnaby? Well, I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah, I'm referencing, I'm referencing how much things have changed since I have returned. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got obviously Malcolm Turnbull coming up to the 30th news poll in which uh, things aren't looking so good. No, no, indeed. And uh, and then we've also got a by-election happening, uh, which was obviously not necessarily foreseen, and that's between Jed Carney and Alex Batal. And uh, we heard from those candidates last week when Dylan was filling in for me. Uh, so there's quite a lot happening, as well as interstate. If we look across uh, the sea, there was the Tasmanian elections, and now we've got the South Australian elections coming up. So overall, quite a lot has happened and is happening in politics. Yeah, I mean, a lot of kind of heat and noise. I wouldn't say a lot of policy substance has been happening. I mean, things have just been ticking along. But yeah, lots and lots of things for people to get excited about. I think the South Australian election will be really interesting, actually. You've got a three-cornered contest over there with the Xenophon Party, SA Best. Uh, Do you love the video? (laughs) Have you seen that hilarious jingle? It's very bad. Um, It's very catchy. You know, Xenophon's a good campaigner. Um, He's a proven media performer. He's very good at getting his face on the TV. Um, I think there's a lot of weariness over there about the Labor government. It's been in power for 15 years, I believe. Jay Weatherall's been the Premier for a long time over there. Uh, And yet the Liberal opposition's been singularly unable to capitalise on that. So, yeah, who knows, really? I mean, Mm -hmm. I think it's almost impossible to predict. Um, We could well be seeing a Premier Xenophon. 
Yes, yes. Well, that would be hilarious. Um, I think it would be good for politics just to ruffle some feathers and get people to become a bit more accountable, which is why his kind of form of centre centrist uh, politics and somewhat kind of populism has really uh, resounded well and you know, been picked up by South Australians and also those who voted for them in the Senate in the federal elections. I mean, what do you think Nick Xenophon um, is offering that the other two parties really aren't capturing? Yeah, good question. Uh, He doesn't appear to be offering a whole lot of policy differences. Um, What he appears to be offering is a new look, uh, a different take, you know, and just being not them, not the major parties. And that's pretty attractive to a lot of people um, who I think are pretty cheesed off with the the major party duopoly. Um, And it's been a very long time since a non-major party has been in control of a state, let alone the country. So, uh, yeah, I mean, watch this space. It could get very interesting indeed. Of course, uh, the other opportunity or the other possibility is that it's a hung parliament Mm. and that there has to be negotiations between the three parties to work out who holds government. And that, and that could see Xenophon having the balance of power and being in a position to wheel and deal between the two major parties about who forms government. So, I mean, that would be a position which he'd very much enjoy, I'd imagine. He would. But, I mean, when you come down to it, I recall when we had a hung parliament and it came down to Bob Catter, Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott that some of them got a bit in trouble with their electorates for choosing Labor over Liberal and so didn't get re-elected. Do you think Nick Xenophon would get in a bit of a bind uh, depending on who he ended up choosing, given he's so centrist? I mean, it's hard to know, you know, if you vote for Nick Xenophon, um, you're expecting what kind of government, you know, if it became a minority government? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that he takes more votes off the Liberals than he does off Labor, in my opinion. But you're right, it's more split down the middle than it is for, say, Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott both represented very conservative electorates. Um, you know, obviously, uh, Windsor represented New England, which is now mm. Barnaby Joyce's electorate. So a very conservative National Party-type heartland there. So you can see why those guys are in trouble from their base. Yeah. Um, I just think it's really interesting over there and I, I really don't have a prediction. I just, I'm kind of looking on with a lot of interest. Well, it has been quite unpredictable, most of these elections. I mean, in the last state election there in 2014, uh, the Liberals secured 53% of the two-party preferred vote but didn't claim government. It ended up being Labor. So if you're saying Nick Xenophon could be taking votes from the Liberals, surely they must be pretty scared right now. Yeah, the Liberal Party is the, the sick man of Liberal politics in South Australia. I think that, you know, that, that the party's been underperforming there for a very long time, uh, both state and federally. Mm. Um, and, and this is the state that's given us some, you know, grand Liberal uh, politicians over the years, Alexander Downer um, and his dad, indeed, uh, Nick Minchin, uh, Christopher Pine, so mm. some very high-profile Liberal Corey politicians. Corey Well, Corey Bernardi, of course, left the Liberals. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, I mean, the state has produced a lot of leaders, but it seems to be in trouble with its base over there. It does. And uh, interestingly, if we're looking at polling, uh, news poll late last year had SA Best, which is Nick Xenophon's new party, on 32% of the vote, but more recently it's at 21%. Do you think polls are going to be indicative at all of the outcome? No, <laughs> basically. Yeah. I think it's way too hard because in a three-cornered contest, 
which party finishes third ends up determining really which of the other two parties will get in because of the preference flows. Mm. So I think it's going to be very difficult to predict. And um, yeah, basically, I, I don't know. And, and talking to some sort of electoral experts, they don't really know either. It's exciting. Can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> and do you have any, any predictions on the Batman by-election while we're talking about polls and outcomes? Well, I think Batman is absolutely lying ball, actually. Mm. I think it's 50-50, neck and neck. Um, you know, both horses really right up at the finish line, photo finish, I think. It's going to be very, very close indeed. I think uh, Alex Batar was ahead early, but I think Jed Carney has campaigned very well. So um, I think, you know, I think Labor's closed the gap on the Greens. Mm. Um, There's been a lot of controversy over the weekend about a stolen core flute that was defaced. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Someone um, painted a red no sign over Jed Carney's face and made some remarks about asylum seeker policy. That's got a lot of Labor types pretty upset. Um, I don't know if that will flow on through to the, the... electorate at large though. Mm. Well, both candidates are consummate campaigners and hugely experienced in politics, even though they have yet to be elected. Uh, But it will be interesting to see uh, whether Labor's star candidate, which really they had to put someone big in to have a chance against Alex, who has really been, um, you know, increasing her proportion of the vote every year that she has run in Batman. Uh, What do you think about... uh, Jed and those kind of criticisms that have been made about her. She's in a bit of a bind when it comes to Labor's party stance on refugees as well as Adani because she uh, personally has contrary votes, at least on the refugee issue. Oh, the criticisms are valid, in my opinion. She has to toe the party line. It's as simple as that. Um, She can work within the party to change the policy of the party, but uh, she'll have no more influence than anyone else in the the Labor Party. And and let's face it, she'll have less influence because she's not really the boss of a faction. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, as by joining the Labor caucus, she will have to vote with the Labor caucus on, on those issues. And at the moment, the Labor caucus, well, they don't even have a position on Adani. They're all over the shop. Like, what what is their policy on Carmichael Mine? Very hard to tell. Um, and when it comes to asylum seekers, their policy is the mandatory offshore detention of asylum seekers. So I think those criticisms are valid. Um, you know, whether voters want to vote on those issues, though, I think mm. is the other the other issue there. I mean, I think Carney's got a very strong background, obviously, in trade unions um, and in health, obviously, as a former nurse. So she's got some excellent credentials in terms of social policy. And for voters who are interested in those issues, perhaps she's the better candidate. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting because uh, when you are a part of a party who can form government, you are kind of... Uh, you know, in a bit of a bind sometimes when it comes to those issues because the Greens often can take a principled stance uh, because they can't form government, don't need to make those kind of compromises. Well, it's true that politicians need to make compromises, but I don't know if you necessarily need to make compromises on your principles just because you want to form government. Some would say that it would be better if you stuck to your principles and then won government in order to enact the policies that your principles tell you are the best policies. Mm. So, I mean, there is that argument too. The other point I'd make simply is that if she wins, she'll be a backbencher in opposition. So she'll be no more powerful than the Greens, really, on the floor of the parliament. Yes, 
That said, it was International Women's Day last week and I think Jed would make a fantastic minister one day. So maybe she could add to the great talent pool of women in politics, uh, just like Alex would, and uh, and become a leader herself. Oh, I think she is a future front bencher if she does if she's able to win Batman. I think she'll consolidate the seat and, and be able to go on and, and be an influential Labor member. Mm. Now, Ben, let's jump across to something slightly different. Uh, dividend imputation. <laughs> <clears throat> As you can tell, I don't want to talk about it because my throat just uh, started getting croaky. But it's so exciting. Oh, isn't it? It's on the front page of The Age, so it must be exciting. Uh, <laughs> isn't that just a... It just shows you where the age is at these yeah, days, it? Yeah, it sure does. Yeah. It's got a... A Paralympian winning with the Winter Olympics uh, a gold medal and then it's got uh, dividend imputation. So fun times. Mm. Uh, it's the, the headline screams retirees hitting $59 billion plan. Chris Bowen was on ABC this morning talking about uh, his very strong and principled stance that Labor is going to... Um, do or stick to when it comes to tax reform. Uh, They've come out and said that uh, this is ridiculous, that we're giving cash refunds for excess imputation credits uh, for those who have self-managed super funds. Now, Ben, could you define, explain what on earth is dividend imputation and what does this policy change potentially mean if Labor gets into government? Yeah, okay, let me have a go at this. Okay, so have a crack. In Australia, we have these things called fully franked shares. Now, if you are wealthy enough to own some of these fully franked shares, what it means is the company has already paid the tax on those shares, okay? So if you own the shares, what happens is the dividend payments that come to you have already had the tax paid on them. Therefore, you don't have to pay tax on that dividend income as a person, as an individual. Now, most people don't have that many shares. It's not a big deal. But for self-funded retirees who have a big portfolio of shares and who rely on the dividends as their only income or the, the majority of their income, they get cash rebates from the government that make up the difference between the tax that they might have paid and the tax that these companies have already paid on those dividends, okay? So it's a little bit complex and it's hard to get your head around, but basically it means the government's going to be taking money off rich people. And we know how much rich people get upset when mm. the government stops taking, starts to take money off them. So it is quite a politically risky manoeuvre, I think, for... Labor because it definitely hits self-funded retirees who are a key um, conservative constituency, um, a key older constituency, um, and they're well organised and they're vocal. Yes, they are. Uh, they do have their own association as well, the SMSF Association. Uh, this is a huge revenue changer or earner if we did get rid of uh, the, this huge amount of money that we're uh, handing out, I guess, through dividend imputation. And it was a, uh, a reform that was brought in but from the Howard government, Peter Costello years. Uh, and as we know, quite a lot of money was handed out during those years. The baby bonus, uh, there were a, a range of tax cuts for individuals and companies. So, I mean, do you think that this is warranted? Yeah, I think it's a great reform. I really do. You know, I think it's, it just goes to show how many tax breaks are baked into the tax system that there's things like this that most of us didn't even know about. 
you know? Who knew that the government would give you cash if you owned BHP shares, if you're a self-managed, self-managed super fund retiree? Mm. Um, so, I mean, and, and it's billions and billions of dollars, apparently $59 billion over the Ford estimates, which is an astonishing amount of money, actually. Um, so, you know, I think it's an excellent reform. You know, it goes to show that Australia's so-called budget emergency is not really a budget emergency. It's a choice that governments have made in order to keep the tax low in this country. Yes, it is. And uh, and the interesting element is that 90% of these uh, giveaways, if you will, go to self-managed super fund uh, accounts or account holders and 10% go to APRA regulated funds. So it really does affect <coughs> just mainly that one particular group of individuals. Um, they're not huge. I mean, most people uh, put their super into you know, other managed funds. So they'll outsource the management of their fund to someone else for a fee. Uh, so, you know, do we think that uh, there are many self-managed super funds that uh, are owned or run themselves by people who, you know, are middle income earners or low income earners? Yeah, no. I mean, I don't think it'll hurt low-income earners because they have very little super to begin with. Mm. Um, And the majority of working people have their super in industry funds or in retail super funds, which aren't affected by these changes as I understand them. Yes. Um, So, but yeah, that's right. They'll they'll affect the self-managed super fund people. Um, And and I think it's about time that we started cracking down on self-managed super. I think it's actually... Um, a big problem for our financial system. There's all sorts of rules in there that I think are dodgy. Uh, my, my pet hate in self-managed super is the property um, clause where people are allowed to buy houses um, as a, quote, investment and then put it in their self-managed super fund. And that's really a way of, um, you know, property speculation that's incredibly, incredibly tax advantageous for those people. So there's all these tax breaks kind of baked into the super system. And the grounds are, okay, well, you know, these people aren't on the pension, therefore, um, you know, it's helping the, the budget bottom line. But actually, a lot of them are on the pension anyway, because of the way the rules work. So you can get all these tax breaks, you can get all this dividend imputation, you can put your house into your super. And you can still get the pension. Um, so, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of inequality that's tied up with these rules. And, and I think this is a great move by Labor. Mm. Well, it's brave. And uh, the time is now for bravery, especially uh, given that the election is still a, a fair way out. They have time to um, release these kind of brave policies and then obviously reiterate them when the time comes to campaign. They're going to cop a bit of heat on this, I think. Mm. Um, I think you'll see the Australian go ballistic. I mean, you know, who reads the Australian? It's people with self-managed super funds, isn't it? So, um, but, you know, I think um, the financial sector won't like it either. So um, there'll be a lot of blowback and it'll be interesting to see whether they stand firm on it or not. Yes, it will. Ben, thank you very much for coming in to chat with us about federal politics. It's always fun. Thanks, Amy. It's good to have you back. Thank you. That was Ben Eltham, who is National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. He's also a lecturer at Monash University, and he joins me every Tuesday to talk federal politics. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
I'm going to be speaking now with uh, Jennifer Breyer, who is director and filmmaker of the documentary Unrest, which uh, won a jury prize award at Sundance. It was also shortlisted for an Oscar. It is a really amazing film um, and uh, it will be screening at RMIT later this week and you can catch that there or you can watch it on Netflix if you have a subscription. Uh, So I'd really highly recommend checking it out. Uh, But I welcome now from uh, LA on the phone, Jennifer Breyer. Hi, Jen. Hi, Amy. Thank you very much uh, for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, I think that this film is hugely important and it's really a call to arms, I think, uh, for everyone, for the medical uh, community, for those who suffer from myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, And it's also a call to governments to uh, take this illness seriously. So congratulations, first of all, on uh, creating such an amazing film. Thank you so much. Um, and it's so great to be here to talk to you. It's been an amazing year uh, traveling around the world with the film. Yeah. And uh, you have made huge headway really in terms of creating such uh, awareness of this illness. Uh, and I want to go into just how important uh, and significant this illness is in terms of the impact that it has on the people who uh, suffer from it and really um, are survivors in a way because they're dealing with something that is just so uh, harrowing, frustrating and uh, and just takes away the most important things um, that, that everyone would live for their careers, the, you know, the things that they loved doing, their hobbies, uh, their relationships um, are altered. So first of all, for you, uh, when you um, had this, when you got this illness, what happened and just how significant and severe were the symptoms for you? Because uh, it's quite widely uh, referenced that chronic fatigue really doesn't cut it as a name and it doesn't really reflect just how disabling uh, this illness can be for people. Yeah, and that's absolutely been my experience. I I got sick after a very high fever about uh, six years ago now, and, um, you know, I I was sick in bed for 10 days, and and I thought it was just the flu, and after the fever broke, um, I was strangely very dizzy. Like, I would get up out of bed and try to go to the bathroom and walk straight into the door frame, and... Um, I had about a year and a half where I would recover, um, be relatively normal, and kind of back to my life. And then the smallest, um, you know, cold or sore throat or you know anything like that would would send me back to bed again. And I actually think I I had, you know, what I now looking back realize was a mild case of my me that first year. But because I wasn't able to get a diagnosis, I kept trying to go about you know, with my life, um, you know, going to my classes. I was a student at the time, you know, riding my bike like I, like I usually do. And in reality, um, I was making myself worse and worse uh, from the exertion. And so I eventually um, ended up completely bedridden with um, neurological symptoms. I had debilitating headaches and um, often lost the ability to, um, you know, read or write or even speak. Um, and uh, And my heart rate was so high when I would stand up um, due to something called POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia, which many patients with ME have, it would go up to like 130 or 140 when I would stand. And so it ended up making me completely bedridden for a number of years. 
And so, you know, as we can hear from that, it's hugely physically debilitating, but it's also cognitively debilitating. I mean, you were studying for a PhD at Harvard. Um, You seem like you were really uh, going full throttle in life and having a great time and pursuing your dreams. And then this, you know, majorly disrupted those kind of goals and aims. I mean, how did that affect your identity and the way that you uh, perceived yourself? Um, it had a profound effect on my sense of myself. I think without even realizing it, I think I had placed a lot of my value and sense of self-worth in my ability to read and write and think, and suddenly I couldn't do any of those things. Um, and so I spent a lot of time in bed you know, wondering if I never get out of bed again, if I can't do these things that you know, made me, I thought made me who I was, what value does my life have? Uh, and so I struggled a lot with that and struggled a lot with, you know, really the grief of losing, um, you know, these abilities that I once took for granted. And I think a lot of people wrestling with chronic illness or um, major disability, you know, have to have to wrestle with that. Exactly. And you uh, had just recently been married uh, when you got this illness. And I know um, in this documentary, it really follows you and your husband, Omar, um, and he becomes a primary carer for you. And really, um, it's beautiful to watch the relationship between you and just how resilient and um, close you are together. Because, you know, becoming a primary carer really is something that's hugely intimate. But when you've lost your ability to walk or speak, um, you know, Omar becomes so critical uh, to you and your um, well-being. How have you, you and Omar, really um, gotten through this period, and uh, and has that strengthened your relationship? Well, it's funny, you know, in, in sickness and in health is a, a vow that um, I think we don't really think about. <laughs> you know, yeah. Even though there's sort of, you know, when you get married and, and if you're both young, there's this sort of abstract future you know one day we'll be in our 80s and then we'll take care of each other and it definitely this wasn't a a circumstance that we expected to be facing together um at the beginning you know of our marriage and so early in our lives um you know i think it's been enormously difficult and um for both of us and i think he you know he would he would um i think he would say that it's made him a much um uh, more empathetic person, and um, I really do think this an experience like this forces you to change what you value um, in yourself and in each other, um, and it's definitely made us a lot closer. I think, uh, you know, I often describe this as like I feel like we've like lived been, been married for thirty years, um, <laughs> but you know, in the best in the best possible way, um, and you know, I just feel really grateful that we're together. And at the same time, I would do you know anything to um, have you know, had the last six years have been the ones that we, you know, we expected. Um, but I think what has helped is to understand that we are not alone, that there is a very large community of people um, wrestling with the same situation, patients, um, caregivers, uh, and then a lot of people are alone and don't have, um, you know, spouses or um, uh, parents or family to support and care for them. And so um, I think we're grateful for the care that we have, but also that, you know, we need to sort of think about what are we doing for everyone. 
That's so true. And it really does put into perspective, uh, as you say, the priorities and what we value in life and in our relationships. Um, and one of the really um, harrowing scenes, I think, is when things, um, you know, sporadically get really overwhelming for you and one of the um i guess video diary segments that you uh have put in the film was that you said i can't be anyone's mum like this i can't be anyone's wife like this i don't feel like i'm a person and i think that is really um it resonates because you know those are things that are so essential and basic to you and what and your needs and what you want and what um other people want and you feel like this illness is taking it away have you um in your kind of over this period of having this illness reconciled some of those roles um and your kind of capabilities like has that your capacity improved and do you feel like um you're in a better space now to be able to do some of the things you wish you could do um, so I guess, you know, I think, I think there's a, there, you know, there was a moment, um, and, and I should talk about this in the film, but I think early in my illness, um, when, um, I, you know, I, 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 I can't I can't say that I was actively suicidal in the case of like I I had made a plan, but it was more that I, I, I kind of knew that I, I didn't have more than another year or two left of the place where I was because it had gotten it gotten so bad. I couldn't even imagine a year, frankly. It had gotten really, really bad. And um, and I also think I realized in that moment, because I didn't want to die, that I had to somehow find a way to reconcile where I was um, with um, what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be, because I couldn't make being happy with my life contingent on getting well, because I didn't know if I would have control over that. And so I, I, I really tried to reach for a sense of peace in where I was, and I did that in part through all the patients, the other families that I meet, um, that I met in the community online and in, in real life, and then also the, the people that I met in the film. And you, you know, I, I found I think the first few years are the hardest, but I found a lot of people who have managed to live lives of meaning and purpose, you know, even from their bedrooms, who have managed to um, to be parents, and in some cases, you know, meet their their spouse after they got sick, you know, and after they had thought that they had lost everything. And so I, I think there's always that hope that even if there's no, you know, miracle or cure, that it is possible to live a good life. Um, and at the same time, I had to fight for every inch of health and ability that I could possibly find. And so um, I have gotten better over time, and that sinks in large part to treatment. Um, I am taking three different drugs that um, have really um, helped to um, meet a function at a higher level. I still need a wheelchair when I leave the house, but I can travel now and um, and do a lot of the things that I you know used to do. Some of them, um, and uh, and so I'm still I still keep looking for ways to get better. And I think there are a lot of things um, that we could be doing for patients. You know, now if we were investing in clinical trials, you know, repurposing existing drugs and getting access and care to even more people. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, you do 
introduce us to some really inspirational people who are living with myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue. Um, there's a young girl in Kent in England um, who, you know, has been hugely debilitated uh, from her disease, but she's so beautifully um, resilient and her parents uh, have been looking after her uh, so much throughout it. I think that's really special is that you've brought other people into this documentary with you to give them a voice because as um, we've seen with these kind of activism campaigns, it's almost like people who suffer from this illness go missing. Um, They can't advocate for themselves because often uh, they're bedridden. 25% of patients are homebound and or bedridden. And uh, and it means that it's much harder to get this awareness and understanding and advocacy um, to build. But this film and this documentary really has increased that awareness. Do you think you, you yourself have seen an uptake in awareness, particularly from those in leadership positions who can uh, take action in regard to research and treatments and, um, you know, expediting clinical diagnosis because diagnosis, as you said, takes a very long time. It does. And, I, you know, I, I think if I had been diagnosed and given the proper management advice, you know, in the first six months of my illness, I never would have become bedridden. and I never would have ended up in a wheelchair. So I think, I think there are, you know, the, the sort of what we're fighting for in terms of, um, and I should also mention, you know, it's sort of, it, I think there's a this sort of misperception with chronic illness that somehow it's not serious, like, because it's, it's not, quote, unquote, fatal. Um, people do die from, from the disease itself, and we also have a really high epidemic of suicide in the community. We just lost two more people that I know, that I know of last week. And, and so there is that urgency and also that urgency in preventing disability and preventing, um, you know, what, what I think is, is preventable harm. So we definitely want to get the word out. And, um, you know, in, you know, I guess just to give some examples, we've been doing a lot of screenings at, at parliaments. We did a screening, um, um, uh, with the, the the British Parliament, I think about twenty five percent of Parliament have seen have seen the film um, or seen a screener, and it started um, debates in the UK that we've been needing to have for a long time. Um, also doing screenings at the, with Parliament in Finland and Scotland, and so I hope um, that we can do the same in Australia um, in order to think of you know in order to it's recognize that this has been a neglected patient community for decades. Um, I think the thing, um, you know, and how do we get, how do we re-educate medical doctors that they can feel confident making the diagnosis um, and understanding how to, how to get, get patients the, the management um, advice and care that they need. Um, you know, I remember when I first got sick going online and I thought, you know, and, and I, I go into this in the film, but I, I um, was initially diagnosed with what is essentially hysteria, um, and which is a very old idea um, about kind of women's bodies, but essentially they couldn't explain what my symptoms were, and so they they thought that my mind was was generating them, and um, uh, the the and so I thought maybe I just had a rare disease, something doctors had never seen, and so. I went online and found this community that I had no idea existed of, you know, thousands of people representing millions around the world. And I met people who had gotten sick um, in their 20s like I was, um, but in the 80s and 90s. And then 20, 30 years later, they're still at home. They're still in bed. Um, and, you know, our access to treatment um, and our kind of life chances haven't, haven't changed. And so I think that was really what the urgency is. And I started to think of this as, 
a social justice issue and one in which we really need our governments, our research communities, and the medical community to step up and sort of recognize there is this population that has been neglected and we need to take urgent action in order to get them equal access to research, treatment, and care. Absolutely. And to put this all into perspective, 17 million, and that's an estimate because uh, we don't really track very well or accurately who has uh, chronic fatigue syndrome given the the lack of diagnosis um, and tests that are available, but roughly 17 million people in the world have it. Uh, 250,000 in Australia, which is 1.2% of the population, and I believe about 1 million in America. And as you've just referenced, there is a gendered element to this and when you uh, put in your documentary this history of uh, hysteria and also how um, illnesses that disproportionately affect women such as multiple sclerosis were uh, misunderstood for very long we have seen at least that particular illness become better understood, but obviously that's more and more with um, the availability of tests like MRIs and um, spinal tap fluid tests. Uh, But this particular area, this particular illness of chronic fatigue syndrome um, does affect women more. It's about 80% uh, female who suffer from this illness. I mean, do you think when um, you've encountered and uh, the people that you know have encountered um, the medical profession, that they've encountered some kind of unconscious bias um, that has a gendered element? I mean, it's it's hard to say for for certain, um, but this whole idea of your body, you know, sort of... I I was told that... um, there was some trauma that I couldn't remember um, that uh, was suddenly causing all these symptoms after a high fever. A neurologist told me this. And I actually just talked to a neurosurgeon today, and I finally got, um, you know, someone to probably look at my MRI from 2012. And he said, you know, you have pressure in your brain, and it's crushing your pituitary gland. I can see you have a super abnormal MRI. And um, they just didn't. They just didn't catch it. Um, and uh, the the um, and so I just I just think that you know doctors are often trained to recognize patterns that they have been trained to recognize. And if you deviate from that pattern, um, it, it, it's almost like they can't see what's right in front of their their eyes. And and the the, the patterns that he, that we train doctors to recognize are a function of so many upstream things. It's about the research we invest in, it's about where we choose to put the money, and it's also fundamentally about who we choose to believe. And so I do think that, you know, there's been this history, not just with this disease, but with a range of autoimmune diseases, um, all of, you know, many of which also disproportionately affected, affect women, where we do disbelieve women. Um, and we know from research that women are more likely to be under-medicated for their pain when they go and report pain to a doctor. Um, and so I do think that there is this sort of um, gender bias that, that, is, that is happening in diagnosis and treatments. But um, it doesn't mean that men have an easy time of it at all. Um, it's, you know, I think men are also disbelieved and often have the same trouble um, accessing treatment and care as women do. Indeed, and masculinity and standards or expectations of men and their need to just toughen up um, are also play into a gendered element for their experience. Uh, 
just on that medical research element, I know that some really important research is happening um, at universities like Stanford. Um, do you have greater hope now that we're getting closer to some kind of understanding of the biological underpinnings of this uh, illness and also potentially a, a way to screen um, and diagnose people with CFS, particularly looking at the US situation? Because I will get into um, the Australian research a bit later. Yeah, well, it's it's been really um, thrilling to see so many new research groups enter the field um, around the world. So, um, in the U.S., there's groups in you know Stanford and um, uh, San Diego and Columbia and Harvard and um, Cornell and you know a, a number of other uh, universities who are starting to research this disease. And and so I think that is really exciting. I think what um, is frustrating is that the research funding has not kept a pace of that interest, and um, and it's still a relatively small um, field um, as compared to you know other diseases that affect similar populations. So I still think we have a long way to go, but it, we're definitely starting to get really really good science that's happening, um, you know, and helping us to understand the kind of underlying metabolic defects that we're finding in patients, the, um, you know, um, abnormalities in our microbiome, in um, the immune system, and also um, brain imaging, um, you know, studies happening in Japan as well as in Boston. Um, a lot of work happening in the U.K. and in Norway. So it's really starting to, I think, um, you know, uh, uh, um, we're starting to make real concrete progress. And I th- we're at a point now where it is absolutely... Um, the consensus in the U.S. and I think in many places around the world that this is a quote-unquote biological disease that we can measure um, and that we can actually see in patients' bodies. I think it's going to take time to take what's happened in the research laboratory setting and translate that into kind of a cheap and easy-to-deploy commercial laboratory test that we can, um, that, doc- that doctors can use to diagnose patients. And so even though um, we don't, we're not quite there yet, I think we're getting much closer and that's going to help a tremendous amount in terms of getting patients access to diagnosis and treatments um, much earlier in their, in their uh, disease. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I'm speaking with Jennifer Breyer, director of the film Unrest, which is about her experience and the experience of other people around the world who suffer from myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. And Jennifer, just finally, um, I'd really like to know uh, about your next steps and the plans that you have for the future. Um, This is your first feature film. Uh, It's done such an amazing um, job at raising awareness, and I'm sure it's going to have a very long life in terms of its relevance and importance uh, to people. But what plans do you have personally and, I guess, professionally, um, you know, in the next short to medium term? Um, sure. Well, I guess uh, personally I'm, I'm continuing with my activism and um, I, you know, if anyone is interested in supporting, uh, like in supporting the movement, um, uh, we are organizing a, a day of action um, on May 12th called Millions Missing, which you see in the film. Um, and there'll be another one happening worldwide um, with, um, I'm sure, many events happening in Australia. So you can go to millionsmissing.org um, to find out more about that. And um, so, you know, I'm going to keep fighting. Um, and I also, you know, if I can take one thing from this experience that I think has been positive and unexpected, it's that I've 
fallen in love with film and filmmaking and, and the medium of film. And so um, I'm eager to make more films, um, both documentaries, but also narrative films. So I'm developing some, uh, some fiction shorts um, that I'm hoping to make in the next year or so. That's really exciting. And also um, inspirational because I think uh, what is often really difficult um, for people who may not have um, a chronic illness or a disability to understand is that um, people who have these illnesses are incredibly resilient, incredibly talented, and they still have many abilities. And just because they have an illness doesn't mean that they can't do the things um, that they may want and there may be compromises, but they can still achieve a lot of great things. And you are just demonstrating that um, by, you know, putting together this film and, uh, and having such a huge success with your activism. So I want to thank you um, for leading the way and also for highlighting and bringing up with you those people who up until now didn't have a voice. And um, and I really hope that uh, we see some huge improvements in the next year or so. Thank you so much. Um, and I also just say that, you know, uh, uh, to, to badly quote someone, it's not so much that we didn't have a voice is that we were screaming and nobody heard us and so hopefully now people will start to hear us you are listening to a podcast from australia's best known community radio station 3 triple r 102.7 in melbourne i'm speaking now with a panel of experts and wonderful inspiring people and uh, I'll um, name them from left to right not that you can see but I can so we've got uh, Anna Kerr who is an activist and a person who suffers from myalgic encephalomyelitis which is also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, We also have Chris Armstrong who is a researcher at the Bio21 Molecular Science and Biotechnology Institute which is based at the University of Melbourne and we also have have Dr. Heidi Nickel, who is the incoming new CEO of a group, a not-for-profit called Emerge Australia. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Good morning. Um, It's really great to have you all here because you all offer such fascinating insights into this. Really, um, it's an area that hasn't been discussed greatly publicly, um, certainly not compared to some of the other chronic illnesses um, that are autoimmune based or also um, cancers, which have, you know, obviously and rightly so had a lot of airtime and a lot of uh, funding into them. But this has been significantly lacking in focus, public awareness um, and also funding. Uh, So I'd like to, um, I guess, through our chat, Get, you know, gain some insights for myself, for the listeners about, um, you know, just how important this illness is in terms of its effect and impact on the people who are suffering from it here in Australia, the important research that is being done, the research that needs to be done, and also the kind of funding um, arrangements that we have in place and whether they are adequate or not. So um, with that said, uh, I'll head to Anna first because Anna, um, I'm really excited to have you here because you're offering us a really important personal insight in to your, you know, lived experience of um, dealing with the daily, you know, struggle that is ME or myalgic encephalomyelitis. So, um, Anna, I know that um, you you have a really interesting backstory and you have a background in clinical psychology. Mm-hmm. So, could you tell me a bit about um, how, you know, you developed this illness and the types of impacts that it started to have at the beginning and, and where mm-hmm. you're at at the moment? 
Well, my story is actually fairly similar to Jen Breyer's, but my um, illness came on gradually and it started after around about the time of my pregnancy with my first child, which was about 14, 13 years ago. And I started having some really odd symptoms after a very traumatic birth and uh, symptoms that I couldn't make sense of. And I look back now and realise that was sort of the milder end of the illness. So I got lots of pain that was unresolved. I I had awful nausea. I developed these intolerances to things that I had no problem with before, like a glass of wine would make me feel really ill, Uh, caffeine I couldn't tolerate. And these symptoms sort of built up, including what's what we call the brain fog of the illness, which doesn't really, at the more severe end of the illness, describe what it's like, but this sort of... It's like you're thinking through pea soup. And I would also have... I was working at the time, and so I would go to work and then come home and spend... I'd be driving home feeling like, oh, I've got the flu again or I've got gastro again. And I'd think, how on earth have I got that again? And then I'd spend the the days between finishing work and starting work again, sick and in bed. Basically, what happened is my health deteriorated over the years until I got to what is known as the very acute or severe stage where I absolutely could no longer... Um, work or function in any way, shape or form that I recognised. So I became very severe in 2011 and was finally diagnosed once I became bed bound and couldn't do a thing. Now that level of illness um, is uh, almost an intolerable state of being. A lot of people call it a living death and some people live like that for decades. So I was um, confined to a darkened room. I was unable to tolerate noise or even movement. I couldn't get to the doctor because I was too ill to actually tolerate the uh, trip to the doctor and back. So I had to have phone contact with my doctor. And it felt like uh, none of the descriptors that they have for... um, myalgic encephalomyelitis it felt like my whole brain was poisoned and like my my brain was too big for my skull it was like it was swollen Mm. and I had 24-hour pain 24-hour nausea and I couldn't stand up for more than uh, about 30 seconds to a minute because there are orthostatic intolerance problems with people who have ME, which is why it's so disabling, is that when we stand up, quite often that's, that exacerbates dramatically uh, the range of some 60-plus symptoms that we can experience. It's a multi-systemic illness. So the thing that people, it's very hard to explain, is that it really is a brain a lot of the symptoms come from the brain dysfunction. And uh, so even thinking or um, any kind of stimulation when you're in the more severe end can make you feel incredibly horrible. Mm. And including things like having a sensitivity to sound and light. Yes, yep. so I have to wear earplugs a lot now. At the time when I was more severe, because I've improved through a lot of aggressive rest, Um, and a lot of what's called pacing, which is where you do a tiny bit of something and then rest. Uh, So at the time I had children who were three and five and we had floorboards in the house and I just remember being absolutely lying there feeling like I was sort of on the edge of a seizure uh, because of the noise of their footsteps 
on the uh, on the floorboards. Mm. So it's it's hard to explain when you haven't experienced it before because it that particular symptom is very strange when you haven't had it before. How yeah. can noise make you sick? Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, it's like I guess I see it now is it's almost like you have a you have a brain injury. And if you compare people who've had severe brain injury, often they're unable initially to tolerate stimulation at all and you have Mm. to be very careful about um, minimising that in order to stay as functional as you can. Yes. Um, And the name, which is, you know, it's a highly complex name, myalgic encephalomyelitis, does refer to inflammation in the brain and other parts of the body and the muscles. And that's exactly what it feels like, in mm. fact. It feels uh, when when you're in what what patients call a crash, which is where they've overdone it, they've sort of gone past this magic invisible line that you never know where it is, really, um, of uh, of overexerting, is you go into what's called a crash or patients call it payback because it feels very punishing and it happens after often Mm. sometimes during but often after you've overexerted and you can it's almost like sometimes like there's a a scene in the film where Jennifer Bray is coming back from an event and she's clutching in her head and then she has to lie down and she can't speak Mm. I've had lots of those incidents and it feels like your your brain is actually inflaming Mm. uh, and it can affect your speech um, your ability to communicate, even your thoughts. You have no thoughts whatsoever. You can't even think. And that's a really odd experience as well. It must be really distressing um, when you're in that kind of situation mm. where you can't even verbalise the types of things that you're experiencing and perhaps your mm. partner or your carer yeah. is in a state of panic because they don't yeah. know what's happening or it seems yeah. it looks very serious it and, does. and there isn't really a way to bring you out of that immediately, is there? Well, the best the best way for me, I have POTS, which is something that um, that Jennifer Breyer mentioned, which is when I, stand, when I go from a lying to a standing position, my heart rate goes up dramatically is um, the best way to assist that is lying down. So we spend a lot of time lying down, which looks from the outside like sort of laziness or or malingering, but in fact it is a way of allowing the body to recover. Mm. And so if you can get flat as soon as possible, I've had my kids pushing me by my feet down the hallway back to bed, which they find hilarious. But um, it's when I'm, you know, lying, I'm collapsed on the floor. I actually can't conjure the energy Mm. to even lift my head or lift my arm or get myself back to bed. So they have to take me there, really. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So you get some some form of um, recovery at some point by lying down. Yeah, and it's not recovery necessarily to health. It's mm. recovery back to your, in quotes, normal. So yeah. I oscillate between about 10 and 30% of what I used to be able to do pre-illness. Mm. Um, but some people can um, are only at sort of 1%. And so even lying, turning over in bed or going to the toilet, they experience this crash or this payback. Whereas for me, it might be, um, a trip out for a couple of hours today or it might, depending on how functional I am at the time. 
and for someone else it might be working part-time and then spending the rest of the time lying down to be able to be upright again. Mm. Yes, because this is an, a, a disease which does have, I guess, a scale in terms yeah. of the impact on people um, and it can be you know, mild to severe at various points yes. within the illness it's, itself and people can oscillate between those spectrums exactly. or kind of hover at one point if they can manage the energy levels and, um, you, you know, that hover. line mm. um, that you don't want to go over. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking with Annika, Chris Armstrong and Heidi Nickel here. Chris, I'll head to you now because um, we've referenced some of these biological and physical symptoms and also cognitive elements. Um, I know you're researching a particularly complex field. I read a couple of your journal articles, uh, tried to read more like, but um, <laughs> it, it really is an impressive field. And I know that the microbiome, for example, has become a hot topic in the research community more recently recently. In terms of um, the research that you're doing at Bio21 with your colleagues, what are some of the areas and that you're looking at and could you translate it to a bit of a layman's language? Sure. So um, the research has focused on um, the metabolism of the blood and the urine of, of patients, but also um, from faecal samples and in that also looking at the microbes that they have in their faecal samples. Um, and that research has been going on for about a decade, actually. The um, Well, the microbe stuff has been going on for a decade. That was actually my colleagues before I joined in. They um, found a microbial difference, a significant one, between people with MECFS and healthy controls. Um, and from that, we decided to look at the metabolism or the metabolites they produce, so what those gut bacteria produce and how that associates with changes of what um, metabolites exist in the blood and the urine. And when I say metabolites, I mean stuff like glucose, um, amino acids, or organic acids, just small molecules within the body that help everything run. Mm. And what is the difference between someone who has ME and has this kind of dysfunction in, that, in those systems versus someone who's generally healthy? Well, you tend to get a change from what we observed is that you get a change of more of an overgrowth um, it looks as though uh, almost that bacteria have different type of um, diet or substrates that are coming through. Um, we think what might be happening is that there's a, there's a switch more to using amino acids within the host to provide energy rather than sugar. And when you use amino acids, they actually make proteins. And those proteins from the body are used to break down dietary, subs, uh, dietary substrates um, in the in the gut, and then those again get absorbed by your body. But if you aren't producing those di- uh, those enzymes, uh, then they actually provide more food for the bacteria in your gut to then take over. Right. So we think that those bacteria are actually getting more dietary or different types of dietary um, components than they would in a healthy person because the people aren't actually breaking down that dietary stuff themselves. Okay, so they're not getting as much energy, physical energy from that input. Yeah. And it's going elsewhere. Well, it's hard to decide whether they're getting as much. They're certainly getting it in a different way. Mm. Um, And there are a lot of different diseases or other issues which microbiota are having this sort of effect with, um, Mm -hmm. even cancers and stuff like that, where the different types of molecules they're creating, if you become more reliant on on the bacteria, you're also at their mercy. So they're producing 
energy molecules for the body, but also other things that could be harmful. Right. And in terms of that bacteria that exists um, in the gut, like where does it come from? Is it pre-existing and does it just kind of increase from some unknown mechanism or, you know, is there something going on there? Like what, how far have you gotten to understand that particular issue? Well, I guess you, you come into contact with a, lots of different types of bacteria all the time. Um, the ones, the way that they increase, we think it's more like an, any type of ecosystem. So your gut is really just an ecosystem like any riverland or anything like that. And the way you disturb that ecosystem is by providing a different food source or providing a predator or something like that. And bacteria have those same sort of things. So if you're providing different types of food or a larger amount of one type of food, then that type of bacteria are going to take over from what the norm was before. Right. Because there is um, a, an illness called Clostridium difficile, which I know has a, maybe it's not completely similar, but it does have a bacteria that kind of multiplies. And then there are a couple of treatments for that. One is um, a quite unpleasant one about, you know, having a fecal transplant. Are there things that you can learn from other diseases that have similar issues going on in terms of potential new treatments or things to test? Definitely. I think uh, it's a big advocate for that. Um, that's part of a, a big part of the research we want to get done in the future is trying to get other people from other disorders looking at this disorder with their experience. And science is really a specialised field. Everyone has their thing that they know and the techniques that they know. So it's important to get people with that experience in those other disorders to come over so that we can see whether something that they've seen in another disorder is similar here mm. in chronic fatigue syndrome. But definitely we use that for models. So reading other papers with other diseases is important for working out, kind of trying to untangle all the data and information that we get that helps a lot. Yeah. And it's also, you know, it must be difficult because you're looking for some kind of causation, but often it may be a correlation and it's hard to know what the real cause is behind this illness. Well, that's correct. Most of the studies so far has focused on observation, which is largely, it's all correlation mm -hmm. really. Until you start manipulating the samples and manipulating the things themselves, that's, um, that's when you can try and work out or prove causation. Um, and that's kind of where we're going into now. From At the start, we we're looking at patients' blood, um, looking at the types of bacteria and all this sort of stuff. Now mm. we're trying to get into this field of looking at cells themselves and then changing, trying to culture cells of people with MECFS and, and healthy people and then trying to change the environment that they're in to see how their cells respond yeah. and trying to control for that causation, mm. see if there is something there. It's so complex. Um, we have one of your colleagues here with us uh, in the green room from London. Uh, <laughs> so it's just a testament to the amount of collaboration you do. You cross the oceans uh, to do this kind of research together and to share ideas. What kind of um, collaborations are you currently undertaking with uh, colleagues um, overseas and also in Australia? Well, this Fane, Fane's from UCL, so I'm collaborating with him. On, Which is um, the University College University of College London, London yeah. Yeah, in the UK. Um, we're actually on the way to going to La Trobe University at this very moment because <laughs> um, I'm doing a collaboration with them as well, looking at lymphoblasts and, and a similar type of thing, looking at metabolism over time. Um, that's with La Trobe University. I'm also working with um, the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. We're looking at... Um, changes in cytokines over time and how that relates to changes in metabolites. Um, and we're also looking at um, research with a group in um, the University 
of, um, uh, I think it's, it's in Norway, and they're looking at changes in bacteriotherapy, which is the faecal transplant, mm. and looking at that longitudinally and seeing how that changes. And then we also have on and off collaborations with Stanford University and, um, and also collaborating with ANU, so the Australian National University and part of our project. So they're the ones that we're managing at the moment. Mm. They're the key ones right now, but we've also got ones in the future that we're planning to to get on board with. Excellent. Um, I will come back to you on, uh, in particular, those collaborations. I'm going to head to Heidi Nicol, who is... um, she has a PhD in medical ethics, I believe, and she is now the CEO of Emerge Australia. Uh, Heidi, you um, have come into this role recently. I'd like to know a bit about what motivated you to become the CEO of this organisation and why you've become passionate about um, helping and f- patients and trying to change um, the, I guess, the advocacy and the funding for myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome. Thank you, Amy. Um, Yeah, I think for me, when I first came across this position, I looked at it and I read it through and I thought, would this fit with me? And I thought it might fit with me. And then I thought, I'm not sure that I could take this on. It's such a difficult area. And I went away and it stayed with me. It stayed with me, this position that was there. And I thought, this is a position where people are in need. And I went back to it and I reread it and I did more research. And then I think, as I said at my interview, I felt like I had hugely overprepared because I got sucked in. I got sucked into this story. I watched Unrest, the documentary on Netflix. Um, I wasn't lucky enough to go to a screening with a panel like is happening on Sunday. Um, But yeah, I watched uh, the documentary and I read some papers and I read around and I thought, okay, well, my training is in ethics. So I was a research scientist uh, many moons ago, uh, like Dr. Armstrong here, although perhaps not as eminent. Um, So I had a background in research science and I thought, well, I should be able to work my way through some of the papers. I will have something to give in that area. And then I thought, but I've spent the last 10 years as a medical ethicist. I've been teaching medical students. I've worked a little bit at the patient bedside as well. And I thought, how does ethics fit with myalgic encephalomyelitis? And I thought, well, it's pretty obvious, really. People are being harmed. And if people are being harmed in the, you know, by the medical profession or in the way that they access treatments, then that is an area that I could be, I, I could give something with. And apart from, in addition to that, I think that there's a lot of injustice. So with patients who have MECFS, it really depends on where they are lucky enough to live, the physicians that they can access. Um, there's also obviously with NDIS coming in at the moment. Um, if you get a sympathetic assessor or if you're in an area where people know about MECFS or have a background in understanding this as the chronic illness that it is, um, people are getting very, very varied results. So in all ways across the spectrum, I think that there is an ethical issue here. Mm. And I mean, you reference um, the patient bedside and the medical profession. And I know that it's a bit of a merry-go-round for patients because, I mean, there are a range of physicians and specialists who would have some understanding of the biological underpinnings of uh, of myalgic encephalomyelitis, but they don't really own it. It's not really 
you know, their specialty, that it's kind of hard to find one doctor who will take ownership of this type of illness because it is, you know, multi-systemed, as you said, Anna. And, um, you know, they are, as Jennifer said, uh, you know, trained to look at categories and to have, you know, to have certain symptoms fit fit certain boxes and, um, you know, you would go through a certain list of tests for those certain boxes and, you know, investigate them. Whereas this illness, it's just so complex, as we've already heard, and the research is still, you know, it has been done for decades. It's still going, but it's, you know, we're still in its infancy in, in terms of understanding what's happening in the body, um, making huge strides, though, at the moment. I mean, in terms of, um, you know, the medical profession and your uh, organization working you know with these different types of stakeholders how far are you getting in terms of you know education increasing awareness um, and obviously trying to expedite diagnosis so that people who do have this illness um, don't you know overdo things because they're unaware that they have it and potentially don't harm themselves in the long term well one of the things that we are doing that is um very specific to your question is we have been working on putting together a list of health practitioners who do have a specialty in this area so we reached out to our members and our allied community um over the last year and we have asked them all to fill in a little just little survey online asking them to recommend healthcare practitioners where they've had a positive experience and obviously there's a lot of people out there that have not necessarily had a positive experience and it means that what we can do is we can state by state we can put together a little list of places where people can expect to have a, a, a positive interaction with, with mm. the healthcare practitioner. But yeah, it's a huge problem with the lack of diagnosis or the, the lack of a biomedical diagnostic test is just a huge problem. And um, it's a diagnosis of exclusion, really. So what happens with patients is they have a lot of tests done, they have blood tests done, and it just keeps coming back negative, mm. you know. So the, there isn't anything, there isn't anything else, and therefore they end up being diagnosed with, it looks like you may have this. Mm. But then we end up with so many different sets of symptoms and so many different areas that people could go to. So what we're trying to do at Emerge Australia is we're really trying to provide the information, we're trying to provide, um, we've got a really good website so that we can help people, especially in that initial journey when they're given this, you know, sometimes very um, very non-definite diagnosis or what feels like it isn't a very definite diagnosis and that we can really help them to find a specialised healthcare practitioner that we can give them the information about what we know about MECFS. We can discuss things like the research that Dr Armstrong is doing and all of the other researchers around Australia. And we can kind of connect up with people like Anna here saying, you know, these are patient journeys. There is light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully in many cases, um, and really just try and support people. Um, we also obviously try and support people through things like the NDIS pathway. Um, and then we do advocacy as well, just to try and link together like with many. 12th Awareness Day to try and really get ourselves on on, on the uh, political landscape. Mm. And Anna, um, I know, you know, we, we pick up on what Heidi said, it must be particularly frustrating, you know, seeing such a range of doctors having so mm. many tests done and the uncertainty initially of 
having no idea what is happening mm. to you and do you have a, you know, a disease that will kill you immediately, um, mm. you know, and that's where doctors often try and rule those things out first. And then, you know, you're left with a whole range of other things. I mean, how was your experience in terms of going through that process as a patient and trying to find, get some understanding? Well, mine was fairly typical, I think, in that I took years and years and years to get a diagnosis and for someone to put it together. And predominantly that is your GP. And uh, really what we, I guess what we're pushing for at the moment is that contemporary information become part of the mainstream uh, understanding in the medical community about this condition. And in fact, really uh, at the moment, and things have changed in the, even in the last few years, it's actually not very difficult to diagnose this illness. I know we talk about it being a diagnosis of exclusion, but there are very, very specific gold standard criteria that are used called the inter- international consensus criteria, which clearly um, and in great detail point out the, um, the, the kind of issues to look for. And the cardinal issue is this sort of um, what they call post-exertional, uh, it, they use the term malaise or neuroimmune exhaustion or patients say exacerbation of symptoms where even very trivial or minor kinds of exertions, mental, physical exertions, can create this cascade effect or crash crash effect in a patient. Mm. That's actually quite easy to recognise when you know about it. Mm. There are also quite a number of medications on the market that aren't um, PBS funded for using with chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, uh, that have been really very helpful, particularly for the autonomic or the orthostatic issues. So there are a number of medications that can really improve quality of life for patients, um, but it's a, a matter of, of doctors knowing about those and they are on the market and I'm using quite a few of them and they've helped reduce symptom severity. In terms of functionality, that's the area of difficulty for ME is that you can sort of work on the symptoms and, redu- and, and improve quality of life, but often that means you're sort of disproportionately uniquely disabled because of some of the orthostatic problems. But you do become, unfortunately, Unfortunately, you have to become your own case manager and so often your your GP is your base and you hope that they've got some belief in the condition but I've had lots of times where I've been sort of sent off for things that don't work like exercise or, or talk therapies which you know may assist you with coping with the fact that you've got a physical illness but don't improve your symptoms mm. and in fact sometimes make you worse if you're not able to get to appointments um, but there are there are certainly uh, treatments that can help what we need is the information to get into the doctor's minds and into the doctor's surgeries mm. so that they're using whatever's available at the moment which doesn't seem to be happening either um, pe- um, doctors are often relying on very outdated kind of exercise therapies or talk therapies as, as a recommendation or putting people on antidepressants when they're not depressed yeah those sorts of things and that can certainly the side effects of those medications yeah. can also Awful. mean you're far more it unwell make, make you worse yeah. yeah yeah it's definitely not helpful um yeah. i'm speaking with anna kerr uh dr chris armstrong and dr heidi nickel uh we're going to be back in one minute to round out this conversation uh about my encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue so stick around
Brunswick's Red Betty hosts a special intimate performance from Australian singer-songwriter Dan Brody, Friday, March 16. Dan, fresh from a European tour, will play songs from his latest solo album, Lost Not Found, and will be joined by longtime collaborator Chris Brody. Entry is free. For more info, head to redbetty.com.au. Red Betty, a new intimate live music venue and bar in Brunswick. Proud Triple R sponsors. Mushroom hunting at Muraduck Estate on the Mornington Peninsula. Mushroom enthusiast Cameron Russell will guide ramblers through the laneways and valleys of the Mornington Peninsula and explain how to distinguish between different varieties of mushrooms. Every Sunday from May 6th to June 10th. Bookings at mushroomtours.com. Mushroom Tours, sponsoring Triple R. You are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM. It is three minutes to 11. I'm speaking with a wonderful panel, Dr Heidi Nicholl, Dr Chris Armstrong and Anna Kerr, and they've been illuminating the many issues involved with myalgic encephalomyelitis and it's otherwise known as chronic fatigue syndrome. But as we know, it doesn't really encapsulate the myriad of symptoms and the severity of symptoms that people experience. Now, I want to finish our our discussion with a a kind of look at, I guess, the hope and also how we can expedite that hope a bit for people who are suffering from ME. Um, First of all, Heidi, uh, when we're talking about funding, particularly government funding of medical research, that is a really crucial um, source of money for many academics in a range of fields, but particularly in medical fields. We do have philanthropic donations, but in this particular area with this particular illness, what is the situation in Australia for research funding? Sorry about that. Go ahead. (laughs) Am I here? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, I think it's chronically underfunded. I mean, Dr Armstrong will talk more about this from his experience as a laboratory researcher. What we're doing at Emerge Australia is we are trying to advocate um, at a political level. So we went to Canberra a couple of weeks ago and we're just speaking to as many people in power as we can. Um, We need more money. We need money to support patients. We need money for research. Yes. And I mean, if you're advocating in Canberra, what are some of the things that you have been, you know, drilling into these politicians to make them understand the significance, um, the level of uh, debilitation that people experience, because it really affects their capacity to live, to work, to um, care for their children, to have relationships, um, romantic ones, family ones. It really impacts upon their whole life. And, uh, and that obviously has monetary effects for them and um, confidence effects. It, you know, it has a whole quality of life uh, impact that we see with other serious diseases that are getting funding. I mean, what are some of the arguments that you utilise when you're having these conversations? Well, I think the biggest thing that we say is go and watch Unrest by Jen Breer. <laughs> um, you know, it's such a brilliant film that kind of gives people this personal insight. Um, the other thing that we are really trying to drill in is how many Australians uh, actually do suffer from this illness um, and how they are invisible. So it is the millions missing. It, it is the aspect 
aspect that there are people in the politicians' constituency who may be housebound, who may be bedbound, and their stories are just not being heard. So something that we really need at Emerge Australia is we need more members, we need more allies, we need people to get in touch with us so that we can find people's stories in these different constituencies around Australia and then we can go to the politicians and say, here is this named specific person, here is their story and that's what really makes the politicians more interested. Mm. And uh, as of, I think it was um, January 2016 uh, and it's up on the Emerge website, um, the government responded to say that since 2000, uh, the National Health and Medical Research Council provided funding for myalgic encephalomyelitis research totalling approximately $2.4 million and during that time 22 applications seeking funding were submitted to that body. I mean $2.4 million is nothing. It's a drop in the ocean for the type of impact that this has on the number of Australians, 250,000 people at least that we know of. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, how what would be adequate funding? Well, I have seen a, a, a document that's come across my desk, which was put together by um, somebody, one of our fantastic political allies. And I think he was asking for, um, it was, actually, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give the figures, but it was a, a vastly increased amount of money that we're, that we're taking to the politicians and saying, so I don't, I don't have that document with me, but we need more, mm. more funding. And Chris, from um, your perspective, your job hinges on uh, government grants, it hinges on philanthropic grants, a whole range of sources of funding. How have you experienced this in terms of, you know, seeking funding for your your research at Bio21 Institute? Yeah, well, we've had um, a great impact of, of funding from um, philanthropic ventures, Mason Foundation, which is the main foundation for funding research in Australia. Um, but that is obviously of a small nature relative to the large amounts of money that you require from government, like from governmental resources. Um, probably the largest grants we would get would be about a hundred thousand dollars in any one year, um, and that's you know that's very small relative to the amount that they give out. Um, so that the other organisations will have, or other other researchers will have for other illnesses. So uh, we've also started up our own philanthropic venture to try and get people who are interested in funding our research directly, which is through a website called Melbourne Bioanalytics. Um, That takes you to a donations link, the University of Melbourne, which directly goes to the research that we're working on. Um, But otherwise, we apply through grants through the philanthropic organisation, Mason's Foundation, other ones overseas internationally. And we're also applying with NHMRC with the government itself. We did one this year um, and we will be doing ones obviously in the future and we're hoping that they can eventually get more money, especially into biomedical research. And I am going to Canberra uh, next week to talk to them about biomedical research that we're doing in Australia, talk to Parliament about that and talk about um, more of the aspects of the biomedical nature. I think just to get into the minds more of all these biochemical findings that we're finding across the world mm. on this disorder um, and moving away from more of the uh, psychotherapy or cognitive therapy. Yes, well, it's hugely unhelpful and com- really not relevant to people to say you just need to 
talk about it with a counsellor or psychologist and, you know, your symptoms will improve. Sure. Um, and, I mean, this kind of advocacy that researchers like yourself are doing is really important. Do you know, um, you know, about the global landscape and whether Australia is... Um, you know, less funded than other countries. Are there any countries kind of leading the way or kind of have recently put more funding towards uh, research into myalgic encephalomyelitis? Well, I would say um, Australia was actually for a while because of this Mason Foundation, we had some of the largest amounts of funding, which was even small considerably, but we still had some of the largest in the world. And from that, we actually, we had our metabolomics work and the microbe work, which is now the first they were the first research in that field and now the rest of the world that's that's the main focus mm. um i know in the nih in america they've given out tens of millions of dollars now for pretty much pro- projects which are based on the microbe and the metabolome all this sort of same sort of studies and they're they're really backing it so in the nih in america are definitely leading the way now Right. So we need to get Australia's politicians to sit up and listen um, about this. Now, Anna, um, I want to hear from you about advocacy. Uh, We can donate if we so wish to the Melbourne Bioanalytics, is it foundation? Yep. Um, And what's the website, Chris? Uh, It's melbournebioanalytics.org. Great. So that is a direct way that we can um, contribute. But also, Anna, in your view, what can we be doing um, to to, uh, you know, people who um, want to support those who have myalgic encephalomyelitis, what can they do and what needs to be done? Mm, so much. We, we're a community of enormous need. Uh, but uh, Jen Breyer, who is an amazing person, as well as having made her film mostly from her bed in the last four years, has also set up a grassroots advocacy organisation, which really, for the first time, enabled patients with right across the spectrum, so we're talking about the very mild ones to the extremely severe, to take part in advocacy. And uh, the organisation is called ME Action. And if you go to the website, it's meaction.net. And basically, they have um, enabled um, patients to, I guess, from their beds or from wherever they are, to take small and very large actions Mm. Uh, depending on their level of health or depending on how they are at the time because this is a fluctuating illness and so some um, days or weeks you're capable of doing more, other days and weeks you're not. Um, so uh, that's, you know, that's been incredibly powerful for patients. Um, they've also, I mean, as well as initiating a lot of um, uh, advocacy for patients in um, in Congress in America, in, in Australian politics, in encouraging that sort of involvement from patients, they've also set up um, what they're calling this year visibility actions or global days of actions called Millions Missing. And the focus has been on making uh, this illness visible. Initially, uh, We've used shoes um, as a display to represent uh, the, the number of people who are missing from their lives due to this illness. We've had two such events in Melbourne. We've had events in 
Brisbane, uh, in um, at Bondi Beach in Sydney. We've had them all around the world in, in major cities and in small country towns. And even in people's backyards, people have put shoes out to represent and posted online and had a virtual campaign for this Millions Missing Day of Action. And coming up on May 12th, which, which is coinciding with the International MECFS Awareness Day, uh, we are having another Millions Missing um, Global Day of Action and there'll be all sorts of exciting things happening uh, both online, on Twitter, on Facebook, on all the social media sites, um, massive campaigns to raise awareness and to bring um, government attention really to this illness which requires a lot more funding. Just on the sort of um, level of um, comparing illnesses mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't, it's not taking away the legitimacy of the funding for other illnesses but to give you an example, um, uh, I think HIV AIDS in Australia receives something like 15 million per year or a little bit more now mm. um, and illnesses like MS receive about 9 million and MECFS uh, up until very recently has received about $100,000 in biomedical research. So there's a a, a massive inequity there. But also these are illnesses, HIV, AIDS and multiple sclerosis that are far less prevalent than MECFS. So there's a, you know, it's it's just completely incommensurate with the level of disability that the illness causes as well as the numbers so we're really looking to get those those numbers vastly improved Mm. yeah yeah and one of the things that perhaps uh, the people who are much more physically well than those with ME Mm. can do is to physically turn up and you know create a presence because um, that is something which a lot of people are unable to do depending on the day yes absolutely it's very hard for patients to get there which is why we've used the shoes often Mm. with notes from the patients who can't turn up themselves but uh, you know we have been able to stage some physical events but the issue is that we have to advocate for ourselves and the problem is that some people who have coordinated um, millions missing events physical events some of those people are actually from a year and a half, two years ago, have still not come up to their normal level of functioning because of the impact. So sometimes mm. you can overdo it to the point where you are more ill for months and months and months. Yeah. And some people actually get worse. So it has a huge impact. So we actually have the need for people to help us, allies, uh, and also funded advocacy uh, so that we can continue to bring attention to this illness. Absolutely. Now, um, we're all here because there is a screening happening at RMIT this Sunday um, and it is currently sold out, but you need to keep checking the Tribe Booking website and I've put a link to the event on our Facebook page so you can check that too because the organiser regularly updates people um, when tickets become available. So please check that out. There will be an excellent panel featuring Annika her and Chris Armstrong, as well as some other fabulous people such as Professor Neil McGregor, who you work with, I believe, Chris, yep. as well as um, some international guests, uh, including Fane Menza, who is in our green room and he's from the University College um, in London, as well as a journalist from um, who, and a health reporter who has written for the New York Times, David Tuller, um, and covered some of the PACE trials, which have been... M- 
broadly criticised uh, in terms of their rigour and uh, findings. So that's going to be a really great discussion. Uh, I hope people can head along if possible. It's at 2pm Sunday the 18th of March, the RMIT Lower Theatre Building 80. And if you miss out, you can watch Unrest now, anytime on Netflix if you have a subscription. Um, please avail yourself of that and, uh, and watch it because it is really important and I think by seeing what happens, you'll have a greater understanding of just how serious this is and how we need to um, amplify the voices of people with ME. And Anna, you can have the final say. I just wanted to say if people want to know where there are community screenings in their area, there are they are happening all around Australia. We're hoping to have more in Melbourne uh, and they often are really um, exciting because they, are, they include a panel and people can learn more about it. So if they go to unrest.film, on the, on the net, they can find out where their local screening might be. Excellent. Thank you very much to Annika, Dr Chris Armstrong and also Dr Heidi Nicholl um, for taking the time to really thrash this all out, have a proper chat and get some awareness going on um, through this wonderful film Unrest uh, directed by Jennifer Breyer and hope you have a wonderful day. Thank Cheers. you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. We are now speaking with um, an author, a science writer of many, many years, um, Jim Robbins, who has written for the New York Times, the Smithsonian, Vanity Fair, um, a whole range of publications, and therefore has a massive bank of knowledge um, about nature and science and obviously many interests as well in that field. The particular one we are looking at today is the wonder of birds, but uh, as we were speaking off air, um, I know that Jim has written a book about trees, which is one of my favourite topics of all time. So welcome, Jim, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to have you here because uh, this topic has been something that has definitely sparked the interests of people who tune into this show. Um, I spoke with Jennifer Ackerman last year uh, in the studio about her book, The Genius of Birds, and that was obviously very fun because they're, you know, Birds like the New Caledonian crow fashion tools um, to, you know, pick out food and are highly intelligent. And we also have some very intelligent birds here in Australia. So I'm really um, pleased that there's more contributions to this field, including your book, uh, which is called The Wonder of Birds, and it's out through Black Ink, which is a great publisher here in Melbourne. Um, so, Jim, first of all, uh, when it comes to birds... I mean, what what was it that sparked your interest in birds and were you doing um, initial research into birds that kind of got you thinking that there's something more to this? Yeah, I did a story uh, for The Times, and these stories I'll mention are available on The Times website if people are interested, uh, about hummingbirds. And I went to a, a lab in at the University of Montana near where I live and um, I watched these scientists put hummingbirds in a wind tunnel and give them a feeding tube so they could uh, eat, sip nectar while they flew. They cranked up the wind so that the bird was flying at 30 miles an hour, but it was um, staying in place like a treadmill. And then they would take high-speed film of these birds and then look at these films in super slow motion to understand how they fly. 
And, and it opened up a whole world. I mean, I've always loved birds and, and a bit of a bird watcher or twitcher, as they say here. <laughs> and um, But knowing that people were taking birds and, and looking at them, as you will, under a microscope or in an x-ray machine or whatever was kind of very interesting to me. And so I started looking at how people – I call this book an interpretation of birds, how people interpret birds. Mm. Um, there's another fellow in the same lab that, that – uh, looks at dinosaurs, studies dinosaur behavior because birds are the dinosaurs that made it. Um, and so he can look back at how flight might have evolved using birds as a model for understanding how dinosaurs may have once learned to fly, and which I found absolutely fascinating. It is fascinating. And uh, you do talk about that. That's actually the first chapter is um, about birds, the dinosaurs that made it. And uh, it's really about it does. There's some massive contributions that have been made that you highlight in this book um, to the different theories that have, you know, occurred over time. There are two main theories um, that both seem quite inadequate and don't really explain things. And uh, and one is the arboreal. Uh, Explanation, which is the first flying animal must have glided from a tree to the ground. And as it went, it added flapping to increase thrust. And then the second uh, explanation is the cursorial, which refers to um, the animal's ability to run fast. And, uh, and the theory is that after really zooming along, um, you know, almost like a runway, this uh, a bird or a type of dinosaur that became a bird um, made a series of leaps and somehow, uh, you know, got off the ground to some level and defied gravity. I mean, these seem quite fantastical. I mean, it is really difficult to somehow extrapolate from fossils what these dinosaurs were doing. But as you highlight in the book, there is this researcher who has another theory and he discovered or came across this theory through baby birds. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, he says, look at the living animal. Why study stone fossils when you can look at, at the dinosaurs of today and kind of project backwards or a window into the into the distant past? And what he, he studied baby birds Partridges, they're precocial birds. Precocial birds are birds like the Australian bush turkey, which is super precocial. These are birds that are ground nesters, and on day one, they can run and, and escape predators. Altricial birds are birds that are born in the nest and need care, parental care for, for days or even longer. And so he looked at birds that, that are precocial and on day one can, can run up uh, the side of a, a rock or a tree. Birds are great climbers, by the way. It's one of the few things we know we don't know about. But one of the many things we don't know about mm. birds is that they have amazing feet. Uh, he calls them Leatherman tools. That they can do anything a bird wants them to do. And um, climbing logs and climbing rocks and so on is nothing for for many birds. And he has film of those those birds doing that. Um, and so he looked at baby partridges, and from the time they're born to the time that they fly, he believes that that, that period of, of weeks there is how dinosaurs evolved over millions of years. And in, in this, this, um, this period is, is a glimpse into the evolution of, of flight in dinosaurs. The, one of the big questions in the field is why would a, dinos- why would a bird be born well, – actually, why would a dinosaur have half a wing? Because it, 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 it doesn't do anything until it's full grown. And so what he found is that a wings or proto wings, the early wings, 
were um, a balancing mechanism for birds to run and that they probably at some point birds were born with a bigger balancing wing and those are the birds that first learned to fly and then the course of evolution favored them and they actually became able to glide and eventually to actually fly and so over millions of years a bird balancing wing went to a flying wing and Mm. it's very innovative and very um intuitively uh, um, interesting I think there's probably something like that going on. Yeah and the study that you're referring to um, known as the hay bale experiment involved uh, this researcher's son as well he was off doing um, other research at another university while his son was keeping an eye on these baby birds as they grew and as they removed or pulled apart these two hay bales and they were trying to get the birds to go from one hay bale to another, they discovered something exciting and funny, I guess. Um, Could you share, I guess, what that interaction was and what we learned from that experiment? Yeah, his son was uh, was watching the birds while dad was away doing something. And his son was 14, I think, at the time. And he said, they're cheating, dad. He said, they're not flying, they're climbing. And they were climbing. And that's where he learned about the climbing uh, of birds, how how radical climbers they are. And, um, and then they were gliding down. And mm-hmm. so that's when he first started thinking along the lines of, of how birds may first have learned how to fly. And his son now studies the same thing. He's a, uh, I forget what, what college he's at, but he teaches the same kind of bird physiology, animal locomotion at, at other places. He's, he's followed his father's footsteps. Mm. And it does highlight a couple of things that we don't often see visually that birds are doing, such as climbing, but also flying backwards. There's really a range of um, movements that they can do that we don't often assume or associate with birds. Mm. What are some of the most impressive things that you have you know, learned about throughout this book? Because I know, for example, hummingbirds are particularly impressive physically uh, with their movement. And that's one of the points of the book is to try and say, hey, folks, there's a lot more going on in the world than we we know. I'm trying to, I guess, we'll treat the world better if we kind of wake up and see a lot of these things for the miracles that they really are. Hummingbirds are one of the great flyers in the world and bird world, and they fly upside down and backwards. Ravens do barrel rolls and fly (laughs) upside down. Um, Flight is an amazing thing. We We think about our aircraft as kind of being this amazing technology. Um, but it's primitive compared to what birds can do. Mm. And that's one of the things that comes out in the laboratory that I'm talking about where I visited scientists. Um, but, you know, if you think about it, Ken Dial, who is the, the dinosaur guy, uh, said, you know, a bird can go from 30 miles an hour and to a dead stop on a cattail that's waving in the wind. And, and our our machines come nowhere close to that. Mm. One of the things that they're trying to design into aircraft based on bird studies is, is the ability uh, of birds to morph, to change their shape, to go from having their wings outstretched and gliding to being shaped like a bullet. And they do that quite, quite quickly. And there's a number of designs of aircraft that are looking at this kind of a change in, in body shape. Uh, so when a, a plane takes off, it would, it would be very different looking 
than when it was flying. Mm. It's really interesting. Um, and you note in uh, the chapter on hummingbirds that, uh, you know, the history of flight and aviation has really, and the study of it has come from birds and the observation of birds, such as Leonardo da Vinci's uh, Codex on the Flight of Birds and uh, Thomas Berwick's A History of British Birds. So, I mean, birds have provided an immense source of information for us and continue to do so, as you just said, um, you know, currently uh, and in the book, it says that NASA and MIT built and successfully tested a shape-shifting wing made from millions of pieces of metal, plastic and other materials that morphs um, like a bird wing as it flies. I mean, that's really exciting to hear. One of the other things um, that I found fascinating was that you talk about kind of the research that we haven't done or the things that the gaps in our knowledge and that, you know, a lot of the designs that we've created have assumed that these wings and feathers are completely solid. Um, whereas that's not the case. Feathers are quite special and unique and have, um, gaps. Can you tell us more about the feather and what makes it particularly impressive? A lot of gaps in the, in between the the um, feathers to hold air to make the the feather um, hold the bird aloft. Um, one of you mentioned, you know, one of the things we don't know, and that's one of my favorite themes in the tree book and again in this book is how little we really know about the world, and it's absolutely mind-boggling when you start to. Uh, it's one thing to ask a researcher or someone what they know about their their particular um, field. But when you ask them what they don't know, is when it's very illuminating. I talked to a redwood uh, forest researcher, and I was quizzing him on the roots and, the, and these tall trees that grow in California. And he said, uh, I'm not sure. He said, well, I don't know. And then he, he said, you know, it's embarrassing how little we know. And you think a tree, well, that would be pretty simple to understand, but there's a lot more going on than you can ever imagine. And it's the same with birds. There's so much there to learn and to to wonder about. There is. And some of the facts that sparked my imagination um, was that, for example, uh, the hummingbird has a, a record number of heartbeats per minute, 1,260 when it's at full flight um, and uh, in torpor which is when it's kind of in hibernation almost at rest it can be between 50 and 200 so this bird and it has um, a heart the size of a pea which is the largest um, in the animal world relative to its size I mean this is kind of biological miracles really like the things that birds do the I guess the muscles that they have in their wings and their breasts you know that's just um, something that I guess we when we look up in the sky and see birds flying around perhaps don't quite understand or fully appreciate I think that's true I think that uh, that's again that's kind of the main theme of the book is well this is really amazing stuff folks I talk about uh, penguins and they before they dive, uh, they raise their heart rate up to about 250 beats per minute, and then when they dive, they go down 1,500 feet, which is about 10 times what humans can do. They go down in this very cold water in the um, in the Arctic, and they um, go or excuse me, Antarctica, and they go down to 1,500 feet, and their heart 
rate goes down to five beats or six beats per minute. So they have this ex- exquisite control over their nervous system. We actually do too. I've written I've written several books about about the human nervous system. We have that ability, but it's something you have to you have to learn and spend time doing. But but it tells you something about these animals and how they've adapted to their environment. Mm, and that they're very advanced. I mean, we've talked about the physical and biological impressive um, aspects of birds, but what about um, their cognitive genius and communication because they're two of the things I think that we may not understand yet. One um, that you pick up in chapter four, which is about the flock and murmurations is particularly interesting because that's one field that really needs more research undertaken um, because it would also help humans understand a range of elements, particularly extinction um, and migration and climate change. Um, could you talk more about, um, I guess, what a murmuration is and then what we currently know about flock behaviour and communication? A murmuration is the, are those swirls of bird, birds that fly together by the thousands without hitting each other and they're able somehow to stay uh, an even distance apart and to swoop and swirl and to um, do that for minutes, if not longer, in the sky. It's, it's quite amazing to watch. There's plenty of videos of it on, on the Internet. And um, pe- physicists have been studying it, biologists. They have no idea how it's – well, they do have some ideas how they think it's done. Mm. Um, some people think it's telepathic. Some people think that there's information transfer between birds when they're flying. But what they know is that that there's a metacognition or a group mind that these birds have that's bigger than the individual parts of this. So they kind of come together and create a super intelligence. And it helps them do things like knowing when to migrate, when it's safe. Migrations are very risky for birds, and so they want to do it at the most optimum time. When the weather's good and the right time of the day, it tells them when to mate, uh, where to go for food. So somehow there's this information transfer and gathering that's taking place in a bird flock. And there are a number of researchers who are trying to figure out how all this works. They think there might be a fundamental force of physics um, at work here, uh, and they're trying to, to trying to discover more about how it works. Mm. And um, and you do talk about the fact there may be influences or birds that are perhaps more wise or have a better knowledge base of things um, that tend to influence other birds behind in the flock, and that's one theory. Right. But it's obviously not yet proven that that's the case. Um, one of the things I thought was particularly fascinating was um, that birds navigate in migration by using a range of cues. And you talk about um, stellar constellations, the smell of a forest, um, or the Earth's magnetic lines, which birds can actually see. I mean, how, how does that work? How do they see? Well, one of the things that I, I get at in the book is that we can interpret birds to tell us bigger things about the world. And quantum biology is a, a relatively new area of science. Um, and it's basically... We be, they believe that uh, quantum biologists believe that quantum effects, which are Einstein called spooky action at a distance, are um, work at a macro level, not just at a an atomic level. And one of the things that they think might be uh, a kind of quantum entanglement 
is the magnetic lines on the planet, which are a hundredth of the power of a refrigerator magnet, and something, a chemical in the bird's eye called cryptochrome. And this allows the bird to see these magnetic lines through a process of entanglement. And entanglement means there's a hidden connection happening between the bird's eye and these magnetic lines. It's very unlike our physical science. And so it's new and it's, it's kind of hard to get your mind around a bit. But they also think, uh, scientists think that photosynthesis, the process of, of plants gathering light from the sun, is also a, a kind of quantum entanglement process. So it, it tells us something about the world that we live in may be different. The birds may tell us that the world we live in is different than we really think we live in. And I, I think I interpret some of that in the book. Another thing, I talked to a scientist who believes birds may have – he's a neuroscientist at one of the top institutions in the, in the world for neuroscience. But he thinks that something called panpsychism is, is um, a, a, an elegant explanation for the world and that is that not only humans but birds and other animals with advanced nervous systems might have a mind or a soul even. So I, I look at some of those arguments for – for um, how we interpret the world through birds. Mm. And you do talk about the fact that uh, Western science and the frameworks that we currently have can restrict us and limit our understanding of birds and that perhaps um, we're missing things by using just one kind of way of looking at things. Um, And uh, you mentioned there uh, birds having a conscious level, a mind state. And in the chapter around uh, the chicken... Uh, it's multiple parts, but it was really um, affecting for me. I am a vegetarian by choice for ethical reasons. And one of the things that you really point out strongly and conclusively is that um, the way that we treat chickens, uh, it may be slightly improving, but it's still really poor. And um, these chickens are smart, intelligent beings and they are crammed into cages where they can't move. They're fed antibiotics um, to keep them well enough to live the, you know, however many weeks they're meant to eat food to, you know, become plump enough to be sold very cheaply in a supermarket uh, if it's for meat. Um, The kind of uh, big chicken um, corporations and the, the market that you outline in America is really quite distressing um you know when you were researching that chapter what were what was the kind of biggest thing that stuck out to you about chickens and and why did it i guess affect you when you were researching that because you say that you know you can't really look at the chicken in the supermarket the same way again uh the chicken the thing that stood out for me the most is that the chicken is the most industrialized animal in the history of the world that's astounding. We raise them by the billions in this world, and it's totally, it's totally unfeeling. Uh, we just we treat them as machines. And I look at how chickens were considered sacred, how they they uh, are often pets, uh, people's pets. They teach their their young. I think someone told me uh, chickens are the only uh, bird that teaches chil- uh, not children chicks to um, certain. To certain things so there's there's a lot of reasons there i stopped eating i stopped eating costco chickens which are kind of the worst of the industrialized chickens i think and i i do eat meat 
but I also stopped hunting, hunting birds uh, after I wrote this book. I, I started to realize there's just a lot more going on in the animal world and certainly the bird world than I, um, I thought. And birds probably with chimpanzees and, and uh, the great apes are probably right up there in terms of intellect with, uh, with those animals. And so it really made me question what... Uh, how I wanted to be in the world. Mm. And I mean, the the way that uh, birds are, as you say, treated like machines, I mean, one of the um, parts of research that was really, um, it stood out to me was from the Journal of Poultry Science that calculated uh, that if humans grew at the same rate as chickens um, in those farms, they'd weigh 650 pounds or in Australian terms, 295 kilos by the time they were two months old. It's just astounding, and it seems like that is some form of torture. It is. It's animal torture, and, you know, the breasts are so big because that's where a lot of the value is in raising chickens that they often can't walk. They fall over. Their legs are are poorly developed. Um, They have heart problems because their hearts can't... uh, can't pump enough blood to, uh, to kind of fuel all the all the, the weight they put on. So, and it, it's just it's kind of a mess from beginning to end. And um, there's they're starting to clean up the industry somewhat. Um, I know some. I think one of the big manufacturers in the U.S. is putting chickens to sleep before they they slaughter them. I don't know how real these reforms are. It remains to be seen. But there's a lot of opposition to the reforms. The big growers who have a lot of power, big chicken, they don't want to uh, make these because it would cut into their profit margin. And when you have an animal that sells for a dollar ninety nine a pound, which is what four four fifty a kilo or so. Um, you don't have a lot of room for for uh, expenses. Mm. It's a pretty cut rate industry. Yeah. Um, just finally, I wanted to touch on, I guess, the message of your book and the things that you conclude with um, in the epilogue. And I guess part of it is about climate change and um, that we, you know, through better understanding of birds and, um, you know, nature more broadly we can start to adapt and change our behavior towards birds hopefully but there's also um, something you talk about which is that the notion of human exceptionalism um, which is a fundamental assumption is now being re-examined and our kind of place in the cognitive chain of intellect and and importance is being challenged and you've just said that birds are really um you know the next level of intelligence the closest to us really apart from one or two other animals i mean you know to you does that kind of give you hope what what does give you hope um and what kind of message did you want to give overall well Hope is a good one. I, I call myself an intellectual pessimist. You look at the world and what's going on around, you can't help but be somewhat of a pessimist. Mm-hmm. But I'm a glandular optimist. I believe that people are waking up. And I think that's, I really think that's going on right now. I don't know why, but people seem to be interested in these things more than ever, whether it's mindfulness and yoga and interest in animals. I think there's a kind of a, a, an awakening that's going on. And I think that we are much more deeply connected to the the natural world than we realize. And I think that people are starting to discover that. And that's the point of this book is to wake people up to things that, that normally would be taken for granted. And I think that uh, I think that's happening. And I have I have much hope for the future. 
And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.